2: Looking at TikTok, we may be banning TikTok, we may be doing some other things or a couple of options.
1: Just over a year ago, it seemed as though TikTok was going to be the blue touch paper for a tech war. The US president at the time, Donald Trump, proposed banning it from the United States.
3: The president says that when Americans download these apps, they're putting their privacy at risk. So now he is putting TikTok and WeChat on notice this morning, ramping up the pressure for these Chinese-owned companies to sell these apps. It
1: was then being sent into a forced sale, a fire sale.
3: The video sharing app TikTok has apparently reached a deal with Oracle to take over its U.S. operations. President
1: Trump had ordered TikTok's Chinese owners to sell or shut down U.S. operations this month. And then a year on... Well, in many ways, nothing has happened. Except that China itself now seems to be worried about the vulnerability of its tech
0: sector.
1: China has introduced a new data security law. It seems to be worried about the extent to which companies like TikTok and their owners are the backdoor by which the US might control its people. And of course, vice versa. So how best to handle China? How best to handle TikTok? Hello, and welcome to The China Problem, a series of thinkings with me, James Harding. As with our first series, The Battle for Truth, where we try to make sense of what technology was doing to fact, trust and democracy, we're trying once again to make sense of a defining argument of our times the China problem. How should the West handle Xi Jinping's China? Should it step towards the coming economic and scientific superpower of the 21st century? Or should it stand up to the militaristic authoritarianism of a modern Mao? It's a problem that's crept up on us, but it reaches everywhere. Technology, diplomacy, finance, energy, science, freedom of expression, peace and war. And it's about more than big power politics. As I hope you'll hear in the course of these podcasts, it's more human than that. It's about bullying and courage, suspicion and honesty, control and freedom. It's an argument about our rights as people, our hopes for society. And if it sounds as if I'm emotional about the China problem, it's because I am. I'm emotionally torn. My journalistic career, my professional upbringing, if you like, it happened in China and the US. I was a reporter in Shanghai in the late 1990s in Washington at the start of the century, and I loved my time in both places. I have friendships in both places. And so I meet the reality that we see today with a certain degree of sadness. The idea that we're going to go back to a world in which China and the US are in a standoff and we're all drawn into it. It feels depressing and also frightening to me. I fear the world is going to be more precarious as a result. But that said, I'm worried too about wishful thinking. I'm concerned that I'm stuck in a happier past, that Xi Jinping really has changed China, that his government is more totalitarian at home and more overbearing abroad. And we start with TikTok, an unlikely battlefield in the contest between China and the U.S. Thank you all in different time zones for doing this. I think I'm most, am I most grateful to Ray Mar. What, Ray, what, what time is it where you are?
3: It's not too bad, it's 7.04 a.m.
1: Right, yeah. I imagine when you do your best thinking.
4: And Chris, where are you? I'm in, well, Gateshead, but I say Newcastle. So nobody knows about Gateshead. And Michelle, thank you so much for, for joining us. Where are you?
2: Well, I'm in New York, so.
4: Oh, are
1: you? I didn't
2: mean I, I had a good time.
4: Okay, well, that's very good. I'm trying to think, like, if I have stupid DVDs in the background, I'm at my parents' house at the minute, so...
1: (laughs) So here's one element of the China problem. Technology. How best to handle China. How best to handle TikTok. In the technology great game, TikTok is not the only battlefront. AI, Huawei, there are plenty of others. But TikTok seems to have been the most public. And in many ways, the most bizarre. Because on the face of it, who cares?
2: Long story short, a group of people on TikTok are making a Ratatouille musical and they... Who
1: cares what celebrity videos you download? Who cares what lip-syncing videos you upload? But as you'll hear, TikTok matters. It's exposed the justified paranoia of governments, both East and West, over the information and power that increasingly sits beyond their control. My guests, joining me from around the world, and in fact from Gateshead, are Chris stokel Walker. He's the author of TikTok Boom, China's dynamite app and the superpower race for social media. Ray Ma, she's a China tech analyst and the founder of Tech Buzz China. And Mishi Chowdhury, who's a technology lawyer based in New York. And she's also the founder of the Software Freedom Law Center. I'm going to start, if I might, with. <laughs> Chris, Chris walker you've written a book on TikTok in real time, which is no small achievement given how fast this story has moved. Uh, can I ask you a really simple thing which I don't understand is, is there any danger to us as individuals that the Chinese state can get a sense of who we are and what we think by what we scroll on TikTok?
4: In theory, yes, but in practice, no. So in theory, any company operating in China is meant to be able to be subject to the communist party rule and a demand for any data from it in practice very unlikely and and tiktok have been very outspoken in the fact that they have said they would never give over this data and they've never been asked so it's you know i'm i'm not the best journalist in the world james but i i like to think that i'm decent at my job I, i've tried over you know the last couple of years to try and get you know what is essentially the scoop of the tech world of the 21st century, which would be that TikTok hands over user data from the West to Chinese state officials. And from that, there is this mass conspiracy of spotting your daughter or or your son dancing in, in their bedrooms and somehow that being a deep state plot. The reality is the evidence doesn't exist. And I'm not the only person that's tried to find that. There are issues around TikTok, of course, many issues, but the reality is that it seems there is no connection, there is no bat phone between Xi Jinping and the ByteDance leadership.
1: And is there something that sits in between full-scale TikTok surveillance, i.e. the capacity to watch an individual and watch what they're watching, and if you like oversight of anonymized data that could give you, on a at a mass level, a reading on social behavior in the United States that itself might be quite useful to China.
4: Yeah, and, and this is one of the fundamental issues. So TikTok makes clear that user data is never sent to China. In reality, there is user data that is sent to China. It's just that it is aggregated and anonymized, as you said. And with that, there are these issues around, can you start to discern broader patterns? But I I think that what we're really seeing is an acknowledgement of a fundamental issue over the last 20 or 25 years. We've diagnosed that there is an issue with the amount of data that we hand over to tech companies the reality is that we've misdiagnosed the cause, which is we've kind of come to this realisation in 2020 and 2021 that data is an issue and handing it over is an issue and TikTok's kind of Chinese links make us more conscious of the fact that that is an issue. But we're diagnosing the issue as being China, whereas actually the issue is all of tech and the amount of information that we we very readily hand over to people.
1: Uh, and so this is an issue and, Raymar, I'd like to ask you about this. This is an issue then that says we don't really have a U.S.-China issue. We have a state versus private sector issue where, the, where companies have greater capacity to process data, have greater ownership of data than governments do, and governments are trying to catch up. I, I guess I'm asking that because I'd love you to explain what you think is happening in Xi Jinping's China vis-a-vis the new security data law and concerns that the Chinese government itself seems to have now about ByteDance, the owner of TikTok?
3: Great question. I think a lot of the cybersecurity and data security laws have been coming online in China in the last couple of years. The reason, actually, if you read this one interview by um, DigiChina of a scholar that's been working on these laws for the past 15 years is that there were efforts to catch up to the West in terms of personal privacy and data protection back in 2003, but there was some restructuring in the government. And if you really think about it, this was not a priority for the government for a long time because tech penetration simply wasn't very high. It was really in the last decade that you have these Chinese big tech giants you know, really penetrating into the daily lives of the billion citizens that live there. So it's really come to a head in the last five years. About five years ago is where you see cybersecurity. So 2016 is when the cybersecurity law got passed. And actually in China, if you are a procurer of cybersecurity software for your company and you didn't and you did not do your job, you can actually get personally fined. That's how strict the law is. And we see that this year, there's personal information security and there is data security and similar measures, right? So you you can also get fined if you're someone involved in data security and you didn't do your job. You can get fined, I think, up to 50,000 RMB. The Chinese government has put a lot more rules around this because they've become a lot more aware of the data. I would say it's not necessarily just because of the new administration, it's also because the economy and the interplay between technology and you know, society has fundamentally changed in the last 10 years. And you actually do see the Chinese government trying to put itself a little bit ahead of the technology, a little bit more proactive. I'm not a legal expert, but based on analyses I've read, they're being a little bit more proactive than the United States and Europe in this case. But you see governments all all around the world really trying to do the same thing, which is answer this question. How, how should we regulate corporations who now know, as you said, more than we do, but also might be abusing this power if we don't put boundaries around and them?
1: Raymond, I know you write about this in, in many different guises, but the reason TikTok is so interesting is that on the f- face of it... So much of what it does seems so innocent. And so, forgive me if this question feels a little innocent, is the Chinese government's intervention, the new legislation, an act of public protection or self-protection? Is it around protecting public impacts from technology? Or is it around state control and preserving the power of the party?
3: Most of the laws, if you read into it, actually, I would say all all of the clauses are about protecting the consumer and the public. The laws do include uh, certain clauses that differ from the West in that it gives pretty extensive power to the state or call it to the police and to national security uh, when it comes to looking at the data that's gathered. That is there. But I would argue, you know, I think for all practical intents and purposes, The state in China, I think, already could probably access a lot of the data based on national security concerns. And really what the main consequence of these laws is actually to prevent corporations from uh, abusing their rights. So things like selling your data, um, things like forcing you to give data and not giving you another choice. Uh, For example, some of these apps, they don't allow you to say, you know, I don't want, for example, personalized recommendations. You, you simply just have to agree to give out your data. Uh, all of these practices are now being regulated.
1: Rima, I'm going to come back to you. I'm going to come back to you, Chris, in a moment, because I feel like we're getting the outlines of the argument here between state and corporation, between the U.S. and China, about social safety and individual liberty. But but I wanted to bring in Mishi Chowdhury, because I think there's a risk with all of this, that it feels like big power politics that has... Next to nothing to do, if you like, with any of us caught in the middle. This is a Washington-Beijing argument. But, but the reason, Mishi, that I was really interested to hear from you is is how you think this does impact on the freedoms that individuals and companies then have around the world. You know, I'd be interested to how you think it impacts India, but I'm interested to see how you think it impacts citizens everywhere. Great. Um, well,
2: India is a tiny country with only 1.25 billion people. <laughs> <laughs> And also the fact that the market is, at least as we speak now, not to TikTok, but uh, to at least several other companies which operate at a global scale, that market is still accessible and open. Unlike the other country we've talked about, China. I think one major issue, which at least I have been observing is India is often seen as just an offset for China, especially in the Western part of the world. And there's obviously much more to it. One, it is a democracy. Two, there are 55 countries in the African continent. There is Latin America, the Southeast Asia, who all actually look up much to the leadership of how India is going to handle various these issues, whether it is content moderation and misinformation or it is privacy. And those are the countries where the next billion who are going to come online in the internet inhabit. India has only 420 million internet users and 950 feature phone users. You can imagine why the market is so attractive that whether it is Mr. Zuckerberg or it is somebody else, they would actually want to fight about uh, the territory which is there. Now, the hostilities in India, at least, are just uh, between the private companies and the current government, I would say, are a variation on a current geopolitical theme. Now, these platforms, they offer consumer-facing digital services for free, as in, in uh, air quotes free, but in return for this mind-boggling quantities of personal data, they exploit and monetize. I think that's mm-hmm. a fact which mostly all regulators, as well as the public, has realized over the period of the last 15 years or so, or actually less than that. It, we forget that iPhone was only introduced in 2007 seems
1: like a very different world right now. But Mishi, can I, can I just ask you, just so, I, just so I understand the point you're making, I suppose I was leading the conversation, and maybe you picked me up on it, I was leading the conversation to say, look, it feels as though there's been a battle unfolding over the last five years over whether we have one internet or two, you know, the argument over the splinter net. Are you saying actually much more realistically, we're going to have several internets where, if you like, Large markets set terms for themselves and adjacent markets, and that means the U.S. may set a set of terms, China may set a set of terms, India will, certain other continental economies might do the same. Is that the world you think we're headed towards?
2: Uh, We're already in that world, is what I would say. The splinter net exists now. It has traditionally been understood as U.S. platform companies, the Europeans uh, who don't have any companies but they have great regulation. Uh, and then are the uh, economies which do not have the usual democratic values, such as the Chinese, the Iranians, or uh, or the Russians from that matter, who have very different way of operating in the internet. And this, the fourth pillar is India, which is at least giving us a semblance of what the various other parts of the world are looking. We are already in the splinter net. We already are dealing with the issues which uh, you allude to. TikTok, has been banned in India completely since 29 June uh, 2020, along with 223 other Chinese apps. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was done when the border skirmishes between India and China started. And that also tells you the big part, these apps and the access to these kind of technologies play in the geopolitics of the world. You have a border dispute, but the apps are taken down in retaliation and are not allowed access to those large markets.
1: And I just wanted to ask you about that. Uh, And Chris, I was going to ask you to sort of see what you thought about the Trump ban in this context is, I suppose it's often sold to us as users of software, that the interventions of our government are in our own best individual interests. But when you take the example of Modi's ban on TikTok, and many of those other apps you mentioned. It was certainly portrayed here as that was a retaliatory act. It wasn't about consumer protection. It was about power politics between India and China. In the US, Trump's ban, again, was portrayed as consumer protection, but many people felt this was the weaponization of the tech sector. So, Michelle, I can ask you first, and I'll come to you on this. Chris, what do you think is driving these divisions, these new walls that are being erected around different parts of our social media market?
2: Well, uh, there may be some distinctive features to be observed in either India's case or in the United States case. But I think the similarities across the countries are much more important as uh, the governments pretend ostensibly to say we are only doing it for consumer welfare. And the companies are also, when it suits them, they're always saying we're talking about our user. But I think the most important similarity is that these are territorial struggles between governments and platforms and the loser is always the user. That is the people <laughs> you're watching from the sidelines in a, in no matter how hard a government bears down, no matter how much the platforms spend on PR and lawyers to wear the States down. In the end, when a final offer is made the companies always fold. Not since Google abandoned China in 2010 decision it has intensely regretted, has any platform been willing to forego any national or a supranational market in order to resist government pressure? And the governments, because uh, in the states where there are elected um, uh, and have uh, uh, the mandate of uh, the governed, and in the states where they're authoritarian, all of them are always telling us they know better.
1: Let's say we come to a sort of intermediate conclusion here, which is that Governments are doing what governments do, trying to ensure their power in the marketplace and globally, and individually, we don't have much to fear from TikTok. Is that a reasonable preliminary conclusion to this?
4: Yeah, the, there is no evidence at the minute, but Michi is exactly right in that we do significantly lose out as users when TikTok or any other app becomes a kind of to use their own phrasing, political football. When conversations around the India ban were taking place last summer, when Australia was starting to crack down on on TikTok again because of kind of the geopolitical issues between China and Australia there, when the European Union was looking at this and when the UK Parliament was bringing TikTok in front of it, the phrase that they used every time was TikTok is... political football and you can kind of see why because there is a soft power element and then there is an e-commerce element these are the platforms on which we transact all of our business they are where we hold our conversations these are public forums where we have everyday lives now and so if you want control of that which any country any massive superpower worth their salt would then suddenly you want to be in charge of that and I think part of the thing that I get to in in the book is that this is a more fundamental issue than just one app. TikTok is, if you think of it either charitably or not, a a Trojan horse almost for a new type of internet in the West. Um, A one based on a different model and a one where maybe societal norms around data and things like that borrow more from a Chinese model. So, Sorry, just, I'm just going to interrupt you for a second. Can you explain that Trojan horse point?
1: Because I don't really understand. What do you mean an app which is a new model for the internet?
4: So TikTok is the first app, basically, that we use ubiquitously that is not based within a small parcel of land on the west coast of the United States. So Silicon Valley has, generally for users in the west, been the source of information And the apps and services that we use, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Uber or any of these things, we've all had a very cozy Silicon Valley, West Coast libertarian ideal of what tech is, I think. And as a European, I kind of find that really interesting, and Michi was talking about this before, Europe doesn't have these services yet. Traditionally, in the entire history of the internet so far, we have been takers of Silicon Valley tech and Silicon Valley norms, what we're seeing with TikTok is the first major global platform to actually be based outside of that geographical area and to come from a different cultural background. If you think about it, the idea of like a West Coast Silicon Valley tech bro and a kind of Chinese tech entrepreneur is often quite different. And there is a complication in this, in that ByteDance is... Uh, CEO, well, outgoing CEO, is very much inspired by sort of Western ideals, Western business ideals. Tell us a little bit more about TikTok then, Chris, because I suppose what you're
1: describing there intrigues me, i.e. that TikTok, if you like, has a cultural hinterland that's fundamentally different from all of the global apps that we're used to. But how does that cultural hinterland, even that political hinterland, impact the way in which TikTok actually works and the way in which it might impact me as an individual
4: user. So the idea that TikTok has been born essentially from a different model of control. So you can look even to the idea of content moderation when things are taken down off apps or services or websites because they are seen to infringe the terms of service TikTok has a sister app in China called Douyin, which has a very kind of interventionist, some might say censorious, content moderation policy. And because TikTok is essentially Douyin, but mapped out and then localised at a a delay, you have the germ of that Chinese origin still in the core of that app, no matter how much you try and localise a service to either the West or to Russia, to the US, to wherever. And TikTok, for their part, also admit this. And in a a, a DCMS hearing last year, they admitted that their content moderation policy in the past was too connected to its original Chinese origins, The, the ghosts, I guess, of this Chinese backing were still within the system there and they have worked to their credit to try and change that and adapt that but but what I mean by this is that TikTok is the first example of a Chinese app that has gone really global and had success others have tried and not necessarily got to this level it's interesting to wonder whether or not there are other apps kind of coming around the corner or other companies that are thinking well maybe this is the time that we go out and we try and make that play for international domination and with that do you get other elements of kind of cultural ghosts that are still in the machine that that very gently nudge you to a different world I mean you see this already live streaming for instance and e-commerce are two of the things that um, TikTok is is really well known for and they're two of the things that China has had for a long time in advance of the west and so you know the fact that we are all spending more time watching people eat watching people drink watching people sleep as they do this live on the internet that's normal elsewhere and so if you're having those sorts of small nudges towards a different type of life, it, you have to wonder whether or not there are more fundamental shifts. And I think that's possibly what the, the kind of more corpulent, vein-popping uh, right-wing politicians of the West are a little bit worried about.
0: Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.
1: Let me go at sort of a number of the different elements around the fear of tech. I wanted to ask Raymond and Mr. Chowdhury, just to follow up on what Chris was saying. Raymond can I start with asking a question which may feel a little bit like wishful thinking. Presumably you've been at the heart of the argument you're seeing on the West Coast, which is that that modern tech platforms, social media, have become a digital free-for-all. There's not nearly enough content moderation. In fact, what we want to get towards is an internet that is more human and responsibly managed. And you're seeing you know, the likes of Mark Zuckerberg make the case for regulation. Is it silly to suggest that what China is talking about in an internet that is more closely managed, where the owners of platforms are more directly responsible, is exactly what many people in the West, even Republicans and Democrats, are asking of their own internet platforms, a more responsibly managed social media?
3: Uh, I I think you could say that. (laughs) I see what you're getting to. Um, it, it, It does seem a little silly that both sides kind of want the same oversight, but I would say the ends are still very different, right? So in China, of course, you have this additional element of political censorship, right? So for example, I was just reading the study came out of the party's youth league on how young people were using the internet in China and one of the things they had was this list of inappropriate content and of course within that list are not things you would see in the west as being inappropriate for example things that insult the chinese culture i don't think you know living in the us that if you were insulting american culture that content would be banned or censored but it would be in china so so i would say the elements are different but i, I don't disagree with you that this uh, idea that content could be better managed on the internet does exist definitely here in the U.S. Is,
1: is that what you think, Michi, is that everyone is arguing about how you manage the internet, but there are fundamental cultural differences in terms of what you're managing it for?
2: I would say that uh, people have now at least started to say that the, the American First Amendment kind of values, which um, the entire world was just forced to accept, are no longer the default values of the internet. And to some people who lived in suppressive regimes where their own laws or their own platforms were not offering them the opportunity to speak or access information, this was a very welcoming thing. But not to forget that this all comes at the price of surveillance capitalism. So as much as Americans want us to believe they're all for all great values laid out in their constitution and everyone else is just authoritarian, there's always a big part money plays. Mr. Zuckerberg's uh, claim that, oh, we need regulation is mostly to say that uh, recognizing the fact that uh, the circumstances have changed and he wants to now preempt and say, okay, I want to have a hand in these regulations and perhaps uh, draw a distinction how my products are treated from other products. So I won't say this is sudden realization of saying, oh yeah, this is great. They know that regulators are going to pay attention once the 2016 US elections, the presidential elections happened, everybody understood what misinformation meant, what weaponization of social media meant, when the rest of the world had been screaming for past 10 years.
1: And Mr. can I just, the thing that you said right at the top there, which was, you know, the First Amendment values of the United States are no longer necessarily the presiding values of the internet, but a move towards greater control on the internet has got to be offset by the price of surveillance capitalism in a freer marketplace, right? All of that makes some sense to me. If you like, the Chinese might say, look, our priority is what we might call a healthy society. And the US or the West might say, actually, we prize above that individual freedom, healthy society, individual freedom. And then the knock on of that is that in China, you see a greater willingness to have state surveillance. And in the US, you'd see a greater acceptance of surveillance capitalism. These are a kind of weighing up of who owns the power, who has the control between government and corporation. If that's a fair kind of caricature of what you said, pricey of what you said, I just want to go back to your original or initial point about India and India being a fourth pillar that's different from China, different from the US, different from Europe. Where does India sit in that trade-off?
2: I wish I had uh, the ability to say, well, India is giving you an alternative in terms of leadership. And look at us, this is how we have done it. And all of you should follow that model. (laughs) That is what I wanted in the middle of the decade for it to be possible to say, India is a democracy, the tech talent it has is unparalleled in a lot of ways. A lot of um, great tech talent has uh, been there, but I will say the democratic and the government realities in India have changed in the past seven years. I also say that there is a lot of China envy in India, at least in the current administration. And the homegrown uh, market in India has um, uh, at least tried to have some sway of the current regulation to say, look at the Chinese, they have uh, limited their markets to only their own homegrown companies. Why can't you, Government of India, be that protectionist? And uh, that's why we saw that there are alternatives now to Twitter, to TikTok, etc., which have emerged because India actually missed the bus on such product, Um, as Chris was earlier saying, to have a global product which could rival an Instagram or a Facebook or a Twitter. When India missed the bus, this is what they thought that we have some Chinese envy. But the problem in India is a small thing called the constitution of India and the democratic regime, which means you will have to follow certain values. You can't have everything your way. And India does want to be a part of the US trade economy. When you want, want to be part of the U.S. trade economy, you can say, okay, you, uh, half of the companies are not allowed. So I think what uh, India's experiments in the last three to four years show that it has actually lost the vision of its own leadership role it acquires in, in the world it's not providing what is expected of a country of that might power as well as the democratic value. It it could have, and it was saying uh, in terms of saying that, okay, we will offer products which are privacy respecting from both ends. And here it is for the user that uh, what the user needs without all the various bells and whistles which others offer, but they come with a, a great serving of surveillance on the side, whether for the benefit of private players or the government players depend on American or Chinese. It could have done that, and there is still at least a big push in terms of open-source development in India that that should be where we should be going. Decentralization is where we should be headed. Because in all of these conversations, what I feel always is that uh, we will always see the tug-of-war between the private players and the government players, and the fat cats will always make the deal. It's the user who does not realize how much power the user has.
1: I I would love to follow up on that too, because I... I'd love to think that's true. I hope that's true. I'm not entirely sure, Mishy, but we're gonna, we'll hold that for another conversation because I want to just uh, address something else, which is let's say that we take Mishy's kind of observation as fact. Right? It's not that the splinter net is coming. It's not that it's inevitable. It's not that it should be feared. It's just here. It's here already. And the question I've got is how precarious is the world at a time when? 20, 30 years ago, we saw the dawn of the internet and thought this was going to be a unifying technology. We were going to all be operating on a level playing field. We're going to be having a level of global real-time connectivity. How much is the idea that we're going to be operating in different marketplaces, in different regions, with different values, likely to increase social, national, regional rivalries, how much is the case that that competition between those different blocks is going to encourage innovation and new ideas? Raymond? what do you think about the splinternet as, in simple terms, good thing, bad thing?
3: Um, I would also yeah, agree that at least some version of the splinternet is here and it's probably being accelerated. I'm not sure that I see it as a bad thing because the way I would define it is that in the past, right, US specifically Silicon Valley tech companies have really dominated and have been everywhere in the world and have great global influence. But now we're seeing companies from China and I'm sure very soon companies from India that are going to be globally competitive and they're going to offer alternative visions of you know product and maybe as Chris said on the philosophical level of you know quote unquote values should be. I think that's overall good for the innovation landscape, you know, as we see with TikTok, right? TikTok really came out of, I would say, a hybrid of looking at Chinese products and the Chinese uh, innovation landscape, and then looking at another Chinese company that was actually specifically catering to the West called Musical.ly. And they sort of combined the insights and made it into TikTok and TikTok is, whether you like it or hate it, it is an innovative product, and it is an innovative way of thinking about how to launch consumer internet apps. So maybe I'm just being a techno-optimist here that overall, this does encourage innovation. We see it already, by the way, with some other companies, not just TikTok, another company, Shein maybe also quite controversial to some people, but that's a cross-border e-commerce company coming out of China, is really taking advantage, frankly, of supply chain innovations in China that domestic brands have been using for a long time, and they are just applying it to the rest of the world. We see more splintering there, by the way, in e-commerce specifically, as Western companies like Shopify and Amazon kick off wide swaths of Chinese merchants, for good reason, I may add. But then there are more channels, some that are uh, Chinese owned, some that are not, that are then picking up the slack and onboarding these same merchants. So there is some splittering there as well.
1: Do you agree with that, Chris? Do you think that we're going to find ourselves at the end of the 2020s thinking, wow, the regional or even continental competition in technologies accelerated innovation and ultimately enhanced the user experience as a result?
4: Yeah, because we're all unhappy with Silicon Valley. We we hate Facebook taking all of our data. We hate Apple locking us into these systems and charging us 30% on all of our app things. We've we've lived in a weird splinter net unless you're outside of the US for the past 20 years because it's been a walled garden for the US. Nobody else has really had a look in. So the fact that we have this kind of global market of competition now is actually excellent. Now, there are issues with it. So, for instance, we can't overlook the fact that Russia has... No Facebook, it has vContact VK, which is an entirely different thing. It's essentially a you know, largely a closed-off internet and an entirely different system. But the idea that we can have the next big thing coming from outside of the US to me is a really good idea because you look at all of the issues that we've highlighted with tech in the last five or ten years, the fact that algorithms oppress non-white people and don't recognize Non white faces, the fact that if you search Asians on Google, you get served basically stereotypical things from porn or things like that. We're going to have a more diverse internet and a more diverse tech system that actually looks like the world that it represents because Silicon Valley hasn't really cut it for a long time. You know, raise a a tech optimist. I'm I'm a tech skeptic, tech reporter, and, you know, I often think that journalist's job and others is to keep these platforms honest when it shouldn't be our job. The platforms should be doing it themselves. So if we have a more diverse system, then I'm, that's I'm what,
1: as, as you're talking, I'm watching Raymar sort of suppressing, not even actually suppressing a laugh, just actually laughing. And I mean, I've got a wide smile on my face because I love the way this conversation has gone in that I sort of went in to say, how do you understand great power politics? And as things stand, at least where we're ending up here, Chris, Xi Jinping's China, the People's Republic of China, Communist Party dominated China is the is the is the little guy standing up to, you know, monopoly power on the West Coast. It's the one that's making the case for market competition and, uh, you know, free market challenges. Um, uh, uh, Do you do you do you do you think there's something to that?
2: And I like the interesting characterization for a person who (laughs) does like actual competition and free market. This would be great. But I am also a realist pragmatist uh, who knows that uh, backdoors come with a price. And to me, the cost of using an app, the price, the experience or what I get out of it is also what I am giving in return. So as much as that David Goliath thing seems pretty attractive, if we are only going to see the world as if only two continents existed, I'm amused by that. And as a person who lives in, or at least was born in the majority world, which is called the developing world, I don't take any comfort in that, considering the price each of these are asking us to pay. I am mostly as a technologist, I'm much more about decentralization and free and open source software. I think that uh, people tend to forget that 70% of the infrastructure which is uh, undergirding the current internet infrastructure also has been developed by free and open source uh, software developers who are all around the world and who are uh, much more committed to the values uh, which are not the Microsoft proprietary values or the Chinese government is acceptable in certain ways kind of values. That's why as much as I am attracted to uh, much more wider democratic principles and I would ex- I would have hoped that India had done something, I also think that all across the world, the yeah. citizens or the users themselves uh, need to have an independent seat at the table because their primary rights are being bargained over by state and platform. And that's why I want to go a little further up and saying that yeah these are all the games which are being played if you zoom out there is much more to that and I uh, still believe in the power of the nerds uniting and then defeating
1: (laughs) all right well that's a good uh, a a a global nerds united uh, note is the right one to to end on so I just want to say thank you very much I'm getting somewhere here I think you could tell from my tone of voice we ended up in a place that I hadn't predicted at all the first thought was this, it's not an individual security issue really. Some people may claim to be using state power in defence of our individual liberties here, but there's not really a risk of personal surveillance. There may of course be issues, questions about the use of anonymized data, but again, it's quite a leap from that to say there's a national security risk. So, if it isn't about personal safety or necessarily about national security, what is this about? It struck me, that it's much more about the imbalance of power between governments, even governments the size of China and the US, and those big tech corporations. It's what you might call the geopolitics of paranoia. Both Beijing and Washington are thinking to themselves, we don't have enough control, enough capability, enough understanding of these technologies to allow other countries and their companies to operate freely in our markets. And that, I suppose, leads me to the second point, not one about tech or security, but about values. The harmonious society versus America's freedoms enshrined in the First Amendment. The interests of, quote unquote, the people versus the liberty of the individual. The surveillance state versus surveillance capitalism. What we're fundamentally dealing with here in a conversation about TikTok is this big argument about values. But the point on technology is that there really is something that can be done about it. When you stand back, What I like most is this idea that citizens could, citizens should, have a seat at the table. Because in the argument between states versus platforms, people are bargaining over our interests. And that gets to a third point. The kind of walled gardens that we're seeing, this continental drift, the splinternet, a Chinese internet versus a US one versus potentially an Indian one, many other internets growing up around the world, Well, as much as you might like the idea that this regional competition is going to lead to greater innovation, innovation that will benefit all of us consumers, I find myself worrying about it, worrying about us talking to ourselves, worrying about the Chinese community, the US community, the European one, the Indian one, these continental communities creating a culture online that's self-sufficient but not integrated with each other, not integrated with the world, introspective, not interdependent. And it's surely the case that that splinternet, as well as encouraging competition, more likely encourages a kind of digital nationalism, a kind of online echo chamber, a world that is more prone to hostilities that spill from the digital to the real. In this aspect of the China problem, greater integration feels far preferable to greater disengagement. Raymar, thank you. Go and enjoy your day. Thank you. Chris, Joy Gateshead. Thank you. Look forward to speaking again. And here's the bad news. TikTok is, if you like, at the easy end of the China problem. It's Duplo to the Lego of our next thinking. China, Taiwan and the threat of war. I hope you'll tune in. And please do subscribe to this podcast. Better still, you can actually take part in the conversation. You can join our newsroom. Because at Tortoise, we're not only a slow newsroom, we're an open one. We want to hear what you think. So you can become a member by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and you can use my code, James50, and you get 50% off. You'll get access to all of our journalism, all of our podcasts and our live thinkings where we continue to try and make sense of the news every day. You can take part in the conversation. So thank you for listening and thank you too to Mishy, to Chris and to Ray as well. This episode was produced by Morgan Childs, Glitzia Sala and Katie Gunning. Tom Kinsella wrote the original music. Thinking with James Harding is a podcast from Tortoise Studios, which is run by Kerry Thomas and Basha Cummings.